Yo, how you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 98 of the Simple Life Podcast. Uh, it's out slightly later. Uh, I'm going to get this turned around today, edited and released for you fine folk. Uh, I've been chasing some some guests for a while, and we're pushing back, and we're pushing back. And obviously, as you've seen, uh, I'm kind of revisiting some of the uh, more lively, more um, interesting guests. That's not to say any of my other guests have not been interesting. No offense to anybody. Um, but today's guest has been someone that's been top of my list to to revisit for a while. But actually trying to grab hold of him is near impossible because I don't think his feet have touched the ground since last time we saw him, spoke to him in, God, March last year. Uh, oh. So it's been, it's been quite a quite a while so there's a lot to catch up on here um so yeah without further ado we will move on with the introduction for today's guest who is a qualified and award-winning trainer consultant uh, sorry counselor and consultant offering addiction support family therapy mediation drug and alcohol awareness and harm prevention training as well as a multitude of many other things that we will momentarily get into they are george charlton how are you doing brother I'm all right, man. That's always quite the uh, that's always quite the introduction. That because I don't kind of see myself as that uh, as that kind of as that sounds. I'm all right, man. I'm um, I'm buzzing that we're um, that we're able to have a chat again. I'm loving the setup, Simba. It's looking really good. Um, I'm not the only one who's prolific as well because you're bashing these like podcasts out <laughs> all the time. But I'm good, man. I'm um, I'm currently where am I? I'm currently in uh, the Holiday Inn. In um in Bolton at the minute, uh, came down on Sunday afternoon and doing some work um developing peer to peer naloxone programs down here. So I've been involved in working with um Greater Manchester NHS Foundation Trust, who are right behind the peer to peer approach. We've mobilised four peer projects in Bury, Bolton, Salford, and Trafford. So I've been across Bury, Bolton, and Salford today with a, a bunch of people who use drugs who just fucking light me up, right? They absolutely light me up. So we're out in the community talking about people who use drugs, talking about opiate users, talking about drug-related deaths, telling people about naloxone, which is a drug which kind of reverses um, overdoses, and then training and supplying people on the streets and giving them kits. And it's fucking epic. It's mint. I love it. And um, my favourite quote is, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I guess that's how I feel. It's a bit shit being stuck in hotel rooms. It's a bit shit being away from my family so much. But um, it's it's not a job, mate. It's like a vocation. It's about saving people's lives. It's like sort of special. It's a it's a calling in a lot of ways, I guess, as well. And I think, as we were kind of discussing in the prelude to this before we start started recording, that we're in such an interesting time where people, I suppose, like ourselves, that have unique insight and experience, are suddenly coming to the forefront because we're seeing now we're circling the drain with policies. They're rehashing and rehashing. Obviously, they're now going. Let's we'll we'll take their driving licenses and their passports. So it's like your mum coming in and taking your pillows away because you won't turn the light off at night. It's just so childish. Yeah, yeah. I think you know what it is as well. Though, I think it's like uh, I think it's perverse, man. I really think there's something fucking very perverse around uh, around a drug policy that on the most part, certainly for the, the client group that I represent, kind of people who are disenfranchised through addictions, I think there's very there's something very f- perverse about, like, we want to cause them more pain. We want to mm. cause them more trauma. We want to c- cause them more hurt. We want to make their life more um, their, more difficult, you know? I mean, the that headline for the new 10-year drug strategy from, like, harm to hope, you know, it sounds mint, doesn't it? But, like, when you get into the mechanics of what it's about, mm. there's a real incongruence between like some really good stuff but then some like 
some really bizarre stuff and like that idea about like I'm sure that um the then Home Secretary Pretty Patel in our introductions around the Harm to Hope document said something about like we want to create world class evidence based um like like treatment services but i kind of think well how the fuck does taking somebody's driving license off them or passport do anything to stop them from taking drugs if fucking rodrigo duterte in the philippines right gives legal fucking grounds for people death squads to go out and murder fucking drug users doesn't do anything to reduce drug use in the philippines what fucking chance do we have here of someone taking your fucking driving license away? And then also, how does that do anything from harm to hope? Surely that means if you can't get the fuck, you had your driving license taken off you because you've got a day or ten on there driving under the influence of drugs, then you lose your fucking job. Like, you like how does mm. how does that how does that mean that um, how is that hopeful? Yeah. How does that not cause more harm? It's weird. It's, it's really fucking weird, brother. It it is. It's a bit sadomasochistic, and the only way I can think of it is that it's it's a kind of almost a mutation or bastardization of uh, kind of fundamental extremist Christian beliefs. And it's that you have committed the sin, therefore you have to be punished for the sin. And that's not in the legal realm. That's in the you should suffer. You, the, the common refrain we are often hear from, especially, unfortunately, older Tory voters or older, typically more right on the liberal spe- uh, neoliberal spectrum, uh, uh, sort of with their political leanings, they typically say, well, they chose to do it. They injected it. They sniffed it. And it's just this... It's, it just it skips to the end. It's like how how can you introduce compassion and understanding and empathy? They just go well. No, they did, and it's it's an insanity. Yet if it was their kid and they just one time at a party just happened to say yes, oh it was peer pressure. Oh, and they'll come up with every other excuse other than no. A human being saw an opportunity to do something, thought about it, and made a fucking decision based on it. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. <sighs> And, and and you know what though, isn't it? And and then and then it it really is bizarre that kind of like we have the blinkers on. Like when you think about that idea of people using C two H five OH, do you know what I mean? Like we all use that drug, right? That drug there causes more fucking harm every year than all illegal drugs combined. We have like fucking drugs litter projects to fucking remove that stuff to come around mine on a fucking Friday. And the amount of fucking alcohol bottles that are in people's fucking recycling bins is just unbelievable. We've got drug consumption rooms on every corner in the whole of the fucking UK where people are drinking that chemical formula, which is ethanol, sitting having a pint, slagging people off who take a bit of coke or a bit of fucking MDMA or a bit of ketamine. Do you know what I mean? And we have we've been so we've been Diageo's done the best fucking marketing job of them all, haven't they? Do you know what I mean? Because we think that we we're consuming, and I'm a consumer of that fucking that social lubricant. Do you know what I mean? I enjoy that social lubricant, but it's still a drug. It's still extremely dangerous. But we don't criminalise you for fucking drinking it. What we do is we tell you about the harms. We put labelling on there, and we put kind of regulation around it to stop young people from drinking it and getting harmed. And then if you act like a dick, you act like a dick, and there's some consequences. So why? Is the no why don't we extend the same courtesy to people who use cannabis, who use ketamine, who use MDMA? I mean, I think MDMA probably killed around 121 people last year and was was kind of responsible. It's unfair to say killed them, right? I'm not I'm not that qualified to say that, but those were the, the death figures attached to it. 
Like those nine and a half thousand people who die from fucking alcohol consumption. Why is alcohol not class A, but yet MDMA is? And I think how can we ever be kind of how can we ever be coming from a place of like any integrity or like talking about evidence-based policy when the misuse of drugs acts not like it's not grounded in science, it's not grounded in fucking evidence. And I think it's one of the only pieces of legislation in the whole of the UK government portfolio that's never been reviewed for 50 years. Like yeah, it's just it's been even when they've amended it, they haven't reviewed it, which is not the procedure that they they work on. Uh, so uh, yeah, and, and and it's I don't know, man. I just think it's like um, I think it's it's madness. You know, taking drugs is risky. We're not saying that. We're not saying that it's not. Do you know what I mean? Mountain climbing is fucking risky. Driving a car fast is risky, but we don't ban those things. Do you know what I mean? We don't punish people from doing those things. We kind of, we we offer a kind of a harm reduction approach where we give information and advice and guidance to keep people safe. But I kind of think, you know, like, it's like, it's painful to see to say the government kind of like, it feels like they're dipping their toe in the water around harm reduction. Do you know what I mean? But they're a little bit frightened to kind of, to go mm-hmm. all in there. But then we always come back to that thing around like um there needs to be a level of like punishment. And 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 for me it is really, I think it's quite um it's quite perverse. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, uh I don't know, I'm gonna make a I was gonna say make a massive assumption of my listeners there, but we've all got kinks in the world and some people are its power, its domination, its control. And I think, unfortunately, by the the nature of the infrastructure, the the apparatus of government and yeah. rule rulemaking in general will draw people toward that. And it is often, unfortunately, the people who are given home secretary position or drug policy or whatever are often the ideologues. They have a, a, an opinion and agenda prior to stepping into the role. They're not then going, all right, I've been put in charge of drugs. Let's have a look at this drugs thing. They step in going, drugs are bad. People who use drugs are victims and need saving. And they just can't, they seem to do the same thing that the vast majority that everyone does. And if you look at statistics, even things like heroin, and, and even so we've seen obviously a, a warped statistic uh, anomalies in America with like benzofentanyl and stuff like that. Because obviously that's a whole next level of shit. But the general dependency of, of things is that oh, the highest is around what 30, 35 percent, 40 at a push of the populations. And even then, though the people you've got indicators, we could figure this out early. We had trauma in childhood. You know, did you have other issues with dependency on other substances? So there's many multitude of ways that we could map out this and identify the vulnerable population. And it's the same as I often go back to nuts. We found out people are allergic to nuts. We're not, all right, shit, label everything that's got nuts in. And the people who've got an allergy, make them aware of it and they'll avoid nuts. Yet yeah. people still die and have those reactions. But yeah, yeah, they also have an EpiPen, which is analogous to an aloxalone if you're then going to use opioids. Yeah, yeah. So it's why then... I but we just... don't ban nuts though, do we, Simba? We don't kind of... People are getting harmed because they're taking nuts. So the solution is let's ban fucking nuts. It's actually nuts to think like that. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? But like when it comes to... When it comes to like... um when it comes to like heroin, for instance, like we can kind of, or like diamorphine, it's like we can't make those sweeping statements that because like a percentage of people are dying that we need to ban that drug outright, you know? It's like, it's crazy, you know? My mom was a heroin user. She was like, I think she was 76, 77 when she died and she was a daily heroin user for 10 years, right? She used to get a heroin from the doctor. It was called diamorphine. She got it to treat her pain. She didn't have to piss in a pot. 
to prove that she had fucking that opiate in her system. She didn't have to take that drug in the fucking chemist in front of the queues of people who were standing behind waiting for whatever it was, you know, so the comp- her confidentiality wasn't fucking breached there, you know what I mean? She wasn't trapped with fucking disdain. The doctor used to give her it without problem. And the reason that that happened was because she was a nice old lady who had grey hair and she used to make jam tarts and wore a fucking apron, but she still took fucking opiates, prescribed opiates, heroin, which she got without any problem. But why when somebody ends up with like the pain and the trauma, which we know kind of like 10 or 15% of people who use drugs globally are using to based on trauma and pain of sexual exploitation or abuse, or they've been hurt, they've been in bloody war, civil war, they've seen murders, whatever. We feel like what we've got to do with them people is make their life fucking tougher. Like what the fuck's that about? Like, why can't we treat those people with the same courtesy as we did my old mum? Do you know what I mean? And it's fucking... And, and what we do in that instance is we find a solution to be able to use diamorphine in a really fucking positive way with the likes of like the diamorphine-assisted treatment program, heroin-assisted treatment in Middlesbrough. We see the impacts that that project has on a fucking cohort of people who are entrenched in their addiction, who had like massive health problems, who are entrenched in the, like entrenched in their drug use, in the criminal justice system, lots of like wound care issues, like the, the were a mess in the community and we give them access to a treatment which is transformative in their lives, to stop committing crime, to stop injecting in an irresponsible way, to build their relationships with their families, to become productive members of society, to become fucking naloxone peers with me, to start using their their lived experience to educate doctors, right? We were on we were on calls with loads of doctors who were saying we've never had education like this delivered by people with lived experience of addiction and their lives improve. And then what we do is we go, you know what it is? Let's pull the fucking funding on that thing and you know what right it's crazy right costs about twelve thousand pound a year to put one person through diamorphine assisted treatment right it costs sixty five thousand pound a year to put one person in the fucking criminal justice system and what we've done at fucking foundations right not by the choice of fucking danny armed and i feel heartbroken for danny and the team at foundations because he's fucking he was a trendsetter northeast of england first place in the uk to do it danny put so much work in what we made a statement was whoever it was that pulled the funding he has a good idea. Let's start putting people back in jail for £65,000 a year when we could put fucking five people through diamorphine-assisted treatment for the cost of sending one person to prison. There's just another example of the fucking madness that exists in all of this stuff because it's back to that thing about being perverse. We don't want to make fucking life easy for people whose lives are fucking broken. It's what's going on, man? <laughs> what's going on? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, when, when you, again, this is one of the reasons I thoroughly enjoyed every conversation we have because you see the world as I do through, through that bullshit. And it's it's difficult. I mean, obviously, you're fortunate in the sense that, I say fortunate, because of what you do and the, the way you operate, there is no time for that cloud to gather again and the doubt or the other voices or anything to build. But I've had this argument with countless people at different levels in whether it be, I'm like, hmm. I've fallen out of the organization, so I'm not going to name them personally. Uh, it's kind of personal spot. But anyway, but there's a couple of people at different organizations. That basically, I've kind of gone, I disagree with what you're doing. This is drug exceptionalism. You're basically saying that our drug good, other drug bad. Yep. You can't predicate your business model, which is what it is at the end of the day, on the suffering of others, perpetuating that suffering. You have to identify that if it is fine, that even the alcohol argument is one thing, but now we're at the point if they've gone, 
Oh, well, yeah, cannabis in certain circumstances, that's fine. But on the street, it's skunk and it's dangerous. Or ketamine on the street, that's dangerous. It kills people at festivals. Oh, but six grand in our clinics. Or DMT, that's a horrible drug. People go psychotic from it. Oh, yeah, but we've got research for our uh, round three funding. Or MDMA, dangerous festival drug, you know, kills, as you said, hundreds of people a year. Oh, well, we're doing it. It's all a con, and it's it's back to what you said with with your your, your mum and the doctor. And I've been trying to un- unpin this thing. The reason I haven't released episode three of this uh, series that I'm working on is I've, I'm trying to prove this narrative that I'm showing, like, the invention of the plunger hypodermic needle occurred in the mid-1800s uh, simultaneously by, like, a, a French and a Scottish doctor. And there's then this trend of cannabis as a medicine across the world growing in relevance, then the patent and creation of diamorphine, uh, the patenting of then the needle technology, and then the mass prescribing of a standardized dose. At the same time, the opi- opium becomes then criminalized. So all they've done is create a legal cartel. They've pharmaceuticalized it. They've medicinalized it. And I fear right now what I'm trying to articulate to the world and struggling with is that's what I feel they're doing with cannabis is they're going to medicinalize all of cannabis. And the idea of it being just something you can do as a drug, you, you're not allowed. You have to have the excuse and the reason. And I think they're going to try and create that exceptionalism. That, oh, the drug is fine if you buy it from us and you take it in our assistant, like you're saying, with the assisted therapy. has to be in front of us, the exact dose. We're going to check your pockets, make sure you didn't sneak any others. You can't take it with any other drugs. It's it, it's absurd. It's yeah, absurd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And to me, you know what it is? I can't talk that much to kind of like the cannabis reform and stuff like that, you know, but kind of it is like, I know that like your guys and maybe you can, like, you can educate me here, but I think there is a little bit of concern around kind of like that we that we're going to kind of look to provide opportunities for people to have cannabis but then it's going to be there's still going to be stuff which is wrapped around it which is still a real restriction in some ways like you've just said there that it's got to be used for medical purposes do you know what i mean and then kind of it's got to come from it's got to come from like gm pharmaceuticals or or, or places such as that who've got the monopoly on this medical grade cannabis but it kind of still like it's still it's still really frustrating, isn't it, when you think about, like, how many people died? I've got no idea. How many people died from smoking cannabis last year in the UK? Thousands. Thousands, must be. Um, no. Exactly. I I, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, like, it's mad, isn't it? You know, it's mad that, like... And I think the thing for me, man, look, I think I've... I'm an old bloke now. I'm getting old. I'm looking pretty good. I've been fucking pickled in white lightning over the years. I've found that much. <laughs> but, you know, I think, like, for me, right, like... I've been on a I've been on a bit of a personal journey in terms of like who I am in relation to this stuff, you know. Like so, like so, I was a I, I was a drug user who fucking loved taking drugs. I loved partying. I, I I loved going to the raves. I had really wonderful experiences taking MDMA. Like I. I used to thoroughly enjoy having a joint. Uh, I had the nickname of Budgie Lung by me mates because I could never do the fucking hot knives. I would end up coughing. For, like, I ended up coughing for like. But you know, like I had a. I, I was I was pro drugs and I'm still pro drugs. Do you know what I mean? And the, and there came a time for me through through my drug use where it wasn't where the the recreational or the enjoyable elements for me went into an area where it was about like. I was hurt, you know what I mean? I started using substances, I feel, for for different reasons. I was irresponsible in terms of my drug use. The the environment like the environment at the time was like that you shouldn't be taking drugs. A bit like now, if you get caught by the police, you're gonna get caught, you're gonna end up in the shit. I did get caught by the police, I did get criminalized for my drug use. I found it very difficult to get jobs. I got involved in acquisitive crime. I ended up sent to prison for 
for my drug use and it and I ended up spiraling and I ended up like absolutely out of control for a, like a, a, a dependent drug use I was a dependent drinker I, I was I was assaulted I was stabbed I was hurt you know I kind of went on this whole like this whole crazy journey and then kind of then went into rehab in the year 2000 stopped using substances but I was still a fucking mess you know what I mean so I had it so I ended up kind of like I ended up doing a lot of therapy and and then I ended up, right? I ended up a, a, a drug user advocate, right? Like activist, right? But I was an angry one, right? I was fucking shouting, this is fucking terrible and that's fucking terrible and pointing out all of the, all the same arguments that I point out now, but from a place of being a really angry man, mm. right? And, and for me, I guess like my journey now is taught us that we're never going to do anything by getting angry. Right, and that doesn't mean that the that the 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 state of play currently isn't anything we should be angry about. We should be angry about four thousand five hundred and eighty nine deaths last year. We should be angry about kind of the thirteen hundred and thirty deaths in Scotland last year. We should be angry about the seventeen people who die of a needless and avoidable drug related death today and yesterday and tomorrow we should be really really angry about that but we have to recognize that that anger does nothing but to kind of shut us down from people who we can influence do you know what i mean and i think for me like where i'm at in terms of my journey right now is like um the arguments that you have the arguments that i have the arguments that people like steve rolls transform neve eastwood danny ahmed lots of wonderful like advocates who we have up here and those kind of guys wherever we are wherever we sit right the way that we have to do it is we have to flirt with people and i think that we have to take people on a bit of a journey and and that's the way that i'm choosing to do it now you know so like like I, i'm quite i'm quite I'm blessed, man, right? I'm blessed that I'm in positions of influence with lots of the national drug treatment providers. You know, I'm working with all of the big treatment providers, the Change Grow Lives, Turning Points, We Are With You. I've, I've this not recently got on as a, a non-executive director at Kaleidoscope, the biggest kind of drug treatment service across the whole of Wales. You know, I'm working with the Westminster Drugs Project. I'm working with fucking Humankind, Greater Manchester NHS Foundation Trust. I'm kind of working with all these right now. I don't know how the fuck I'm doing it, but anyway... <laughs> But what you find is with these organizations is like they want to make some changes as well. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of the is the recognition that like the same old, same old isn't good enough. And I kind of feel really privileged that I'm in the position to be able to work with them, but not just kind of say, oh, this is George Charlton's view, because I, I kind of position myself with people who use drugs across the UK to listen to their voices and to be able to be in a position to influence and help those organizations to have confidence to try and do new things. A couple of weeks ago, I was in... Um, I was in Wales at the Senate, right, um, with the, uh, the drugs minister down there who's got the, the national drugs portfolio. I was in there with a, uh, an amazing, um, like, me sister from another mister. She's meant you should get her on. You should get her. She's called Rondine Molinaro, right? She's absolutely fantastic. I'll make the introductions, right? Simma, she's fucking amazing. Um, Rondine's the head of operations at Gwen Drug and Alcohol Services. Her backstory is just mint right and amazing she's an amazing personality but her and i were in the senate and we we're talking about kind of the development of um peer-led projects right peer-to-peer naloxone programs enhanced harm peer-led enhanced harm reduction projects and um we were talking about the successes that we've had in wales there's been some really amazing like um user-led projects going on in wales and um 
we did my thing and at the end of it all after the minister and that had gone uh, one of our aides turned around and said to me he said hey, you know what it is I said what he says I think that's the first time anyone's ever said cock in the senate <laughs> 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 so I fucking have it. I love it, right? Because I think the thing for me is like I, I want to take people on journeys where we can kind of we we can talk about like we can talk about the big problems and the difficult problems, but we can make people smile, we can make people cry, you know. I'm not convinced that reading the 64-page harm to hope document does anything to change people's views, but actually when we can kind of find ways and means of people who are impacted by drug use or people who are drug users, and we can put those real voices and those real videos and pictures of those people in front of them, it gets into the heart. Man, and I think that's where we change policy is through common sense and getting into the hearts of um of ministers. But I'm definitely going to get a t-shirt that says I said cock in the Senate. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's exactly what it is. It's it's through humor and it's through humanizing and it's through humbling that we find and recognize that collective and that shared humanity. And I think that's one of the things that you do so bitingly. It's, it's when you spoke at our event in Durham, I wanted, the reason I wanted you on first was exactly for what you did is you prepared the crowd and you shocked them into a reality that is for, for thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, their lived experience day in, day out. Yeah. And I think there are means and ways to do that. I think I'm still on early in my evolution. I'm less angry than I've been. I'm still obviously angry internally about these things, but I'm, I'm learning how to use humor, humility, and uh, yeah, and just these kind of conversations with this platform, with the other work that I'm doing to try and just just advance the conversation ultimately. And I think that's what is, the more we can discuss it, we can talk it, um, then we can figure the way forward. You know what I mean? I hear you, brother, honestly. And I think that's the thing for me, you know, I kind of like, I think you have mellowed a bit, actually. It's kind of like, <laughs> but you know what, right? Like this platform that you've got here, it's like you're the Joe Rogan of kind of like <laughs> drug policy reform. And you're a bit better looking as well. Do you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, <laughs> look, man, I think I think the thing for me is like what you, what you do really well is like you get a real like breadth of different kind of voices. Do you know what I mean? And you kind of, we mm. talk close to power, don't we, in some ways, but we kind to do that through kind of giving people information, allowing them to kind of make sensible choices. It's not like that you have loads of people on here going, oh, all drugs are fucking great and there's no danger at all. It's like, it's not even about that, you know. We kind of, we try and do things in a really balanced way. But I feel like, you know, that... Um, I feel that we're in a very different place, right? I think that, like... Um, I was speaking to a, a lass yesterday who was doing a master's degree and she was just kind of wanting to just to, uh, just to talk through a few things. And it, it kind of got me thinking about like, just that since I got like me shit together, I thought I was thinking about when I was using drugs and kind of when I ended up in recovery and kind of where we're at now. And there's been so many different kinds of like agenda policies that existed across maybe the last 20 or 30 years, you know, like in the mm. 80s and 90s, like the, the UK was like the fucking, the, the world leader around harm reduction. Do you know what I mean? Like we fucking, we, we invented the term harm reduction, you know, like in Liverpool and, and, and there was some really wonderful stuff there. And then you, then I start to think about kind of like when I was in, 
rehab. I was visited by this guy called uh, Keith Halliwell, who he was the fucking uh, the the drug czar. The, the then I'm sure it was the Labour government kind of came up with this idea that they needed a drug czar, and he was it. And and I had this man come into my room in Sunderland in Doxford Park in the rehab, and I was starstruck by this guy in a suit and all that was when he was going to be doing really well and all that. And I was like, oh, he's a politician. He wasn't a politician, but he was just a part of the drug czar. And then we ended up kind of like getting in this place of like, what was it, tackling drugs to build a better Britain? That became the next drugs policy, do you know what I mean? And it was all wrapped up with like the DTTO, the drug treatment and testing order where let's start getting people pissing in fucking pots all the time and they've got to turn up and do, and it was enforced sobriety in some ways, do you know what I mean? Like kind of, so we had a bit of that going on. Then like kind of we got into like 2010 and then that was the introduction of um, the brick, wasn't it? It was the building recovery and communities agenda, right? And kind of overnight, everyone went from being harm reduction workers to fucking recovery workers. Do you know name badge, quick name badge change, everyone, recovery worker, recovery specialist and whatever else. And if you look at the deaths, right, in 2010, the deaths started going whoosh, sky high. Right. Because there's an argument to suggest that that idea about kind of recovery and abstinence became a barrier for people who were maybe coming for a harm reduction type approach is to stop coming. Do you know what I mean? To stop coming to our services because the idea of stopping drugs was too much for them. And the impact of that was more and more and more and more deaths. And and, and where we live, Simba, the northeast of England, we've got the highest rate of drug-related deaths. Again, this year, the northeast of England's had the highest rate of drug-related deaths consecutively for fucking nine years, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, what did Einstein say? A definition of insanity is to repeat the same behavior and expect different results. Hello, here we fucking go. So then we've had this, like... So then we had the building recovery and communities agenda, which interestingly, it should be called building recovery and brick buildings, right? Because communities for me are, are fucking out there. Where I where I've been a day on the fucking streets, that's where we need to build recoveries, is on the streets where people who use drugs are. However, interestingly, we build recoveries in brick buildings, right? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as fucking hidden populations. I find them fucking, I find them every time I land in a new place. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to Lewisham on Sunday, Sunday. I'll be talking to drug users on Sunday fucking night because they're not hidden because I'll go and find them. But we have this expectation that people have to come to us for drug treatment. There's hoops that they have to fucking jump through. And I think it's kind of got to a place now where we have this new, this new fucking belter, which is from harm to fucking hope. And you just go, yeah, man, it's all a fucking nonsense. It's all just words on paper and a desperate attempt at trying to get people to stop taking drugs. Surely the answer has to be, hang on, we've been doing this for 50 years. It's not getting any better. The drugs industry is worth 350 to $400 billion a fucking year. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it, mm-hmm. what we're doing is not working. More people are fucking dying. More drugs are coming in. They're more stronger than they've ever become before. More people are using them. More people are fucking dying. So surely the answer isn't more of what we've done. When when a, when a minister's going to have the, the the foresight to go, hang on, we've got to do something different here and not be worried about what the constituents say because I think public opinion's changing. I didn't, it wasn't a Yugo for something done recently where it kind of was asking about the question of cannabis or something and it was like 50% of people were supportive of kind of um, decriminalisation or the legalisation of cannabis. I think public opinion's changed, man. Yeah, if you then add in as well prescribing of medicinal access, um, then it's yet to the vast majority. Interesting, I was I was looking up uh, some statistics and a few things um, that I just kind of wanted to bring up as we were talking, and I came across a report from a charity called The Mix um, that a UK based and 
through well they're claiming through their observations uh they're stating a 75 percent increase in young people 16 to 25 year olds um consuming drugs in the past year with uh one to five uh, one out of five sorry claiming now that they're using it entirely to escape from the pain of their daily lives um they also claim that one in three young people um have at all tried drugs in the past 12 months so it, those increases it just one of the things that especially i think I, I quite often joke about with the older heads of people that are like well i've been in in this position for 20 30 years and i was like well yeah back when you got this we had tape walkmans <laughs> the ipod has been shut came and gone already like gee get on board these kids when they're at 14 13 god i've seen children and i complained about it the other day on the podcast seeing a child with an ipad in a supermarket but they've got access to this stuff and you can't watch them soon as you've got oh i'm gonna look at the dirt they're on yeah. TikTok and it's got all of the other people educating about everything. They know more about drugs than you will ever know by the time they're 14. So they're going, yeah, you're a liar. We know you're a liar. We know that's bullshit. They're watching places like America and Canada, especially with cannabis and going, there, there's a whole culture and scene and there's hope and future and I can earn money in that and I'm interested in that. There's music that I like in that. I want to take photos. They see hope and optimism and they're looking across the water and they're sat in this country and going, well, you guys look a lot the fuck up for it. And so it's creating this juxtaposition where the youth now are just, I don't want to sound like one of these older, like, oh, the, the youth are out of control. But I think they're justifiably rejecting not just drug policy, but a lot of governmental policy because they're far more fucking informed. They, they, can't, they can't, can't have the wool pulled over their eyes. They were, they were aware, the feeling you're coming from behind and they're not going to let you do it. But I think also, Simba, I think that there's, I think that like, I agree with you there, what you're saying about young people. I think there was like something, I think one of the statistics is that like 3.2 million people used an illegal drug last year, right? It's kind of, I think that's one in every 11 people, which is about 9% of the UK population uh, used an illegal drug last year. When people hear those stats, they kind of get quite, it's quite startling, isn't it? That kind of like one in every 11 people. It's great when I'm teaching cops as well, by the way, and I fucking give them that stat and I'm in a room for 100 cops so on the law of fucking averages, one of you fuckers, or a few of you, do you know what I mean? We see some people looking at the floor, give them a right hard time. But I think <laughs> the thing for me as well is that I think people are taking active steps to, you know, the, the, this idea of kind of the old Just Say No campaign, Grange Hill with fucking Danny Kendall and Zamo. Do you know what I mean? I went and get, I went and fucking found an image for the other day, posted something on Twitter where they've got, got Zamo like lying with a pin lying on the floor and all that, and there was uproar, and then they had to just say, no, no, campaigns. <laughs> but you know what's like really refreshing for me, though, is like, there is this, there's this undertone which is happening, right? So like, I go into lots of schools and deliver young drugs education to young people, right? And like, at one point, like, can you imagine at one time, you know, maybe 15 years ago, the idea of going in and to schools and talking to young people about how to do drugs safely, right, would never have happened. But yet all of the schools that I'm going into, right, that's the fucking message that I'm, that, uh, the message actually is the safest way to take drugs is not to take them. However, right? However, I'm not going to fucking stand here and say to you, if you use drugs, you're going to die because there's people in this group now, there's hundreds of years who were using class A drugs who aren't dying so if I tell you idiot taking drugs, you're going to die. You're going to think I'm full of shit and I've got an agenda. So I'm not going to tell you, like, I'm going to tell you not to take them, but I'm also going to talk about harm reduction. And you know, the great thing is like, like there's, the schools are enabling these talks to happen. They're enabling me and others. Like I do, um, 
do an amazing session. Like, I, I, I've got a wing woman. We're like the fucking Phil and Holly of uh, drugs education. A last called <laughs> Izzy Soli. Like, she's a, a last that I worked with many years. I worked with her mom actually uh, 10 or 15 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe. Um, I supported her mom because of Izzy's issues around substances. Do you know what I mean? And kind of then through working with her mom, I got to meet Izzy. Uh, and we've got a great friendship, man. She's an absolutely inspiring young woman. You know, her her drug of choice was, and she won't mind me sharing this, her drug of choice was alcohol. And fucking hell, it makes my story look like, do you know, like she, she suffered real harms through her alcohol use. But we go in together and talk to young people around alcohol, around alcohol harms, kind of, and how to stay safe. And it's lush, man, you know, like we might go in and talk to, I was in um, St. Anthony's in um, in Sunderland, private school there, interesting, my mum went there as a little girl, so it was kind of, it was weird actually to kind of be in some of the old grounds where my mum was when she was alive and stuff. Um, and you'll end up with a, like a hundred kids in a, and you'll do your thing and like they get the whole shock and all, they get the potty mouse Geordie and all that and they're laughing and they're all over. But it also gets a bit serious, you know, like when what we have, what kids have to recognise is I'm not saying that everyone who takes drugs is going to end up where I did because that's not the case. Do you know what I mean? Like the United Nations, United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime say around 75% of people who use drugs globally do so without any huge harms that happen to them. Then there's around 10 or 15% of the global population who end up where I did. It's right and proper for me to say that there's a proportion of people who are going to use drugs and they're going to be okay. And also there's a proportion of people that end up like me. So the chances are you have to be really careful in what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? So they have a bit of a hard and tough session with me. But what happens is you end up with like 80 of them or 90 of them kids will all fuck off back to class. And then there's 10 kids who are still walking around the edges of the of the call, looking at the looking at posters and that. And you just know these are the kids that want to come and talk here about their drug use. And last time me and Izzy were there, we had four young girls, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, who come over and said, we really enjoy that. I said, well, thanks very much, girls. How's it going? They went, well, we take, we take some pills and stuff like that. And I go, thanks for your fucking honesty, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the crack? Tell us about what's what's the crack, what you're getting, what you're taking, what's it like, you enjoy. And we end up having a conversation there where mm. these young girls, for the first time ever, are having a conversation with an adult about their drug use. And the response they're getting when they tell me they're taking drugs is, thank you for being honest. Mm-hmm. Not, oh, I'm going to tell you, ma'am, let's get the fucking police. The schools are embracing that. And I think that this is the undertone. God, I tell you, it takes me fucking forever to get back to my point, doesn't it? This is the undertone where what things are changing from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And I think that that if we do it right, if we do it right, politicians being fickle, right, They'll, they're going to come down and grab hold of some of that stuff. I think we're in a really strong place right now, Simba, where I've been doing this work now and around this stuff for 20-odd years. Do you know what I mean? And I think we're in a much better place than we are now where I think we're getting hurt. Yeah. Yeah, in, entirely. And I think even just with what I was rattling off with those statistics before, that if then the youth are exposed to drugs and through people like yourself giving them the education to then be responsible and go, oh, I enjoyed that pill oh, the mystique has kind of gone, it's not taboo anymore. Oh, yeah, I'll focus on my studies. Yeah, I'll do the other thing. It's not that act of rebellion. It's not a, a tool that can be, I'm going to piss off my parents with it sort of thing. It's just like, oh, oh, damn. I'll go, uh, do you know what I mean? So it neutralizes those rogue elements and it then leaves the kind of the core of people that are predisposed almost to the, the problematic. And then the next sort of thing could be interventions. Well, how is home? You're saying that you're taking these drugs, but you're not enjoying them. 
yeah, that's yeah. a big big red flag sort of thing. And this is a, a conversation that I have sort of with any anybody and everybody. I mean, I same I used to take a lot of drugs, was known for taking a lot of drugs and found often sobriety a very difficult mindset to be in. Mm. But then as I started to be more choosy and picky with different substances and actually go, ah, if I don't mix those three things, I don't have this horrible hangover feeling for two days. I'll and start to understand and then re and self-educate myself on them. And then once I was aware what was happening, I could still take the same amount of drugs, but I could yeah. function far fucking better because yeah. I got that, that first thing in the morning, then eat, then do this, then, then that, then that. Yeah. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's real, real basic shit, but most people are left to their own devices. And as we've sort of intimated before with technology and then with people like yourself, again, seeing a, from I'll return the compliment, a handsome uh, elder, uh, was it elderly, not elderly gentleman, uh, up, up, on, up on stage. I'm only 50, just because you I was trying, the thing okay, about playing was saying, don't say elderly, so elderly the only no, word that no, came no, out. No, I love it, it's fine. <laughs> no. But again, like you said, that humanizing element, I think is beyond powerful because if, if I'd have, I remember just even people like, oh, we've gone out, you take two pills, and I'm like, I'm five deep. People are, what what the fuck? And it wouldn't it wouldn't even be that I needed the five pills. It'd be almost I want the shock value of I've taken the extra one. What's, the, I, and you know, What's but, the extra one gonna do? Well Timmy, you're dead right there, you know. You know, I got into lots and lots of trouble with the drugs that I was taking because I didn't know how to do them. I didn't I, I wasn't being because like you, do you know what I mean? Like like you, I was I was necking loads and loads of ease, and a lot of that was wanting to be seen as the fucking pill monster because part of that was about like there was a part of me that needed acceptance and validation and positive regard. Like I was fucking do you know what I mean? And kind of I was trying to find that that kind of like my place in the world, my social acceptance. I didn't feel good about myself, didn't believe in myself, I had low self-esteem, I had low self-worth, you know, kind of like getting a bit of a reputation for being the beer monster or the joker or the guy who necks loads of pills i used to get like emotional strokes from people i used to get validation and and connection but also what i got was i ended up like in positions where i was taking like i was taking shit loads of benzos and drinking liters of white cider you know and ending up with like two central nervous system depressants and kind of using opiates on top of that and kind of like dihydrocodeine taking 50 of them to try and come down off amphetamines and then wondering why people are using naloxone to save me fucking life couldn't understand then why i was like rattling because i was addicted to opiates i wasn't a fucking heroin user what are you talking about i'm not a heroin user well you are a heroin user because you're taking fucking huge quantities of dihydrocodeine which are laced with with opiates you know and i think like the the messaging it was always about just saying no and i do think now we've got so many different outlets like you're saying where people can get information advice and guidance where it's not a bunch of fuckwits just making stuff up you know you've got kind of you've got way of the loop you've got wedding you've got kind of lots of wonderful kind of you've got raging tests sky jones do you know what i mean you can get tests and stuff for people's drugs the reality is people don't want to people don't typically want to die people don't want to be taking imposter drugs and the wrong kinds of drugs do you know what i mean mean and i think that it, we, we've got a movement now where it's about kind of trying to be sensible about our drug use looking after each other as a as a community do you know what i mean and i think that's a really healthy place for for us to be i'm hoping that we get to a place where 
and we're a long way off, man, but where the government can kind of see the, the importance of that. But it's reassuring to start hearing harm reduction being spoken about a lot more. You know, there's a lot more job roles which are now becoming available in drug treatment. The narrative's changing. It's it's not that recovery is dead in the water. Recovery is part of a continuum of harm reduction, but it's not now kind of being held up as this is what success looks like. The public health outcome framework isn't purely written around recovery and successes. You're getting abstinent, leaving treatment and not kind of returning with a drug use for a period of 12 weeks, you know, there's there's an acceptance now that harm reduction's definitely got its place. And I think it's um I think it's coming back, um, which is which is mint. Yeah, because I mean, as you said, either of them are still only hitting a certain group of the population, whereas the combination of the two, and it's uh I suppose do you know um Dana Larson out of Canada? He does a, a service called wetestyourdrugs.ca or whatever it is, and, and uh-huh. they've done 10, 12,000 plus samples. Brilliant guy. And we were talking about a term um, that is a long way off, but I, I'm, I'm trying to get into the conversation to be the next step of benef- benefit maximization. Right. So, yes, we, so we're talking about harm reduction is sort of one side of it, and then benefit maximization. So we're talking about when taking the substance. So yes, harm reduction is, say, negative to, to neutral. Yeah, okay, yeah. I know how to not use it badly. How can I make it better? So yeah, let's yeah. say say learning about lemon tech with mushrooms. Take less mushrooms by mixing your mushrooms first in uh, uh, lemon juice, soak them for 15 to 20 minutes. You're creating a chemical reaction from psilocybin to psilocin. Oh, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> um, and this means that it increases the potency. So then you take less of it, which means you get a stronger, short, shorter burst high, um, and you then sort of come out of it quicker. Same as we know, like decarboxylating with cannabis, for example, around edibles, so then you consume less. Uh, all those kind of things, they can't come under the, the first two remit. And yeah. obviously, we can't, that's promoting drug use, as it were, under their current guise. But I think there needs to be eventually that kind of space for if you then are going to do it. Obviously, you can't say this maybe at school kids. I don't think, all right, kids, so now you've chosen to do drugs. What we're going to do is, but it's that. The do you know what? Really- in my, you know, I think, honestly, like for me, from in certain schools, I'm saying if you choose to use MDMA, start with a quarter and drink water. Like the, you know, like we're talking about the fact that you can put, more, you can always put more in, but you can't take more out. So it's not that we're advocating fucking drug use. And you know what? Some people might go, I don't get complaints. At the end of the day, I don't get complaints about from the schools. Don't get complaints about parents. But if parents want to complain to me and they're saying you're telling my kid how to use drugs, I'm going to go. No, I'm fucking not. But trust me, you'd rather have your kid informed about drug use and how to do it rather than them being fucking dead, which is the reality. Do you know what I mean? Like, because that's that's the reality. But I like what you said there, Simba. Look, I'm not the guy who um. I'm not the guy who kind of talks all about, oh, like, that's what happened to me, so that's what happens to everyone. I, you know what? When I was in the Senate, in the Senate, I'm talking in front of ministers that that there's good effects from taking drugs, that taking certain kinds of drugs feel fucking lovely. Do you know what I mean? We have to act like, I wasn't taking drugs because they weren't nice. Yeah. I was taking drugs because they were nice. But but the, but But we can't be like... We've got to be doing that from a balanced place as well. Like I can't be like a complete angry fuck with going, right, all drugs are fucking awesome. That that's where it's about like we have to make sure that the people who are who are making these arguments are are the right faces, are the right people. Do you know what I mean? Where they can be seen like 
I'm just an open book, man. I, I'm having conversations around fucking drug use in the co-op at half past six in the morning while I'm buying a loaf of fucking bread with a woman on the checkout. And I'm talking about being an ex-drug user. I'm talking about the positive impacts that I had. Talking about the fact that, like, alcohol can be kind of, like, the biggest problem that I fucking have from time to time, you know, because I get to a place where, in terms of it's psychoactive, I can end up fucking out my fucking head. And I've, in the places I've ended up in, the police cells have always been as a result of bloody taking loads and loads of drink and being in conscious blackouts, you know? Like, irresponsibly using alcohol man so I don't know man I think it's just about it's about having those healthy conversations but also the thing for me like obviously which I'm really passionate about doing is like is is creating opportunities for people who use drugs to be seen in a really positive light doing great things and you know like the the peer-to-peer naloxone projects have been going like um, really well across the UK I think um when I do Lewisham and Redbridge next week, that'll be number 30. That'll be the 30th project in three years across like um, across England and Scotland. That's like fucking, what's that? It's like 10 a year, isn't it? Which is absolutely unbelievable, really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, really showcases people who've been written off by society, who's been deemed has got nothing to fucking give, a drain on society, just criminals, not good for anything, hide them away, lock away the key and all that. And, you know, kind of to see these people out in the community, right, like using their lived and living experience for, from positions of good, right, talking to, to members of the public. Today, right, I was in, we're in Salford today, um, underneath the Salford Centre. And and I was with like um, five peers today, all of them who had issues around kind of drug use and stuff like that, sitting with members of the general pu- the public. There was two guys, there was Gary and there was Paula. They were both talking to two Sikh blokes, right, who got the most beautiful kind of shop. It's full of like iPhone repairs. It was just lovely and clean inside. And they were in there for half an hour doing a five-minute naloxone demonstration, right? And they both of the both of the guys took naloxone kits, but they engaged in a conversation 25 minutes longer than the train, and which was a which was about like Gary and Paula talking about their lived experience, where they'd been, the reasons why they were the way they were, and the the humanity and the connection between them, all four of them was amazing. And this is happening all the time, you know, like this is why these projects are so beautiful because it allows the the taboo of drug users to meet with the general public and then what you find is that the general public go god these people aren't fucking idiots then i've still got my handbag do you know what i mean i've been really well informed there and i kind of feel like i want to do something in the event that somebody from our community has an overdose do you know what i mean and i think like th- for me the the peer to peer naloxone things just been the start of it so it kind of got us thinking about like what's next so um what we did in wales is um I went to Newport 18 months ago, um, GDAS, Gwen Drug and Alcohol Services, Rondine Molinaro, give us a bell. She said, can we have a naloxone program? The first one in Wales. I said, let's give it a go. So I went down to Newport. I met with Mick, Kimberly and Leighton, three peers down there. We trained those guys up and um, they became the Wales's first naloxone peers, right? Um, we had a count up of numbers recently. Those three peers did... Um, over 1,700 naloxone supplies in um, 18 months, right? That's what they've done, the three of them, right? They've been responsible for handing out those kits. Every one of those kits has the opportunity to reverse an overdose so it becomes non-fatal. So then we ended up doing... um, I went from Newport. I went to... um, Where did I go? Um, 
Murtha, Murtha Tidville, right? Never thought I'd fucking end up in Murtha Tidville in my life, right? What a great name, right? With an organization called Barrow. They called the group Murtha Mad, Murtha Against Drug Death. So we mobilized their group. Then I went to Swansea Safe, mm-hmm. Swansea Safe, which is Swansea Against Fatal Episodes. All these names the peers come up with themselves, you know what I mean? Then we went to Cardiff. It was Cardiff High, which is Help Is Given Hope. Went from there to Wrexham. Um, what do they call them? The Wrexham Warrior, Wrexham, Wrexham Rescuer. United, them peers, right? Fucking hell, man. They were mob handed, man. Honestly, there was like, there was about fucking seven of them, eight of them, all in hoodies and t shirts. They'd done like 65 naloxone supplies in one day, right? They're all on the streets, like fucking energized, man. Like, where was the last one? Went to Powis, that group called themselves Power Surge. And then Dubbard, I was in Dubbard in Wales about three weeks ago, and Dubbard became the seventh area planning board, the seven area planning boards in Wales, right? They became the seventh area planning board to have adopted peer-led approaches all supported by the Welsh Government right so arguably Wales became the first country in the whole of the UK to have people who use drugs not just people who've had lived experience active drug users volunteering with organisations being paid to go out into the community and make supplies of fucking naloxone right and it was like the, the, we've got grown men right and women we shouldn't just say grown men this is the thing you know got grown men it's kind of like that. when you say that it's kind of that's how important it is because the grown man cries then but have like guys like Wayne with a big fucking tattoo on his face like God mate I feel fucking alive it's like a fr- fucking high and you know what man like that's a common thing that these people say that like these people I don't mean that in a negative sense people who use drugs say you know it's like a free high now that speaks volumes to me because what that says is they're getting something from doing this behaviour out in the community where they feel worthy they feel self-worth they're getting recognition and love that makes them feel the same way as sniffing a bit of fucking coke or using a bit of fucking heroin do you know what I mean and like say man I get fucking goosebumps man I'm covered in goosebumps bumps right now thinking about this daft little project that we send them out in a 33 pound fucking hoodie and t-shirt with a little lanyard around their neck that says naloxone volunteer and they feel like fucking kings and queens and they get acceptance and love from the community and they're able to they're able to tell stories of kind of stories of pain stories of fucking hurt for this client group and what that does instantly is changes people's fucking views like that so it's a the beautiful project so what we're now doing is saying well we've done that let's push the boundaries so now we're working on um pled enhanced reduction harm reduction we set ourselves another challenge in wales which is uh, dry blood spot testing so we're going to train all of the seven peer groups up to be able to go out into the community test people for hepatitis C then refer them in for treatment and support with a new treatment that's available we're doing um, secondary needle and syringe programs so not only do they have naloxone in the bags now they can do a fucking hepatitis C test and we can give you some clean works and some injecting equipment we're doing sexual health and condom supplies so kind of making sure that kind of at the risk of bloodborne viruses safe sex and all that we're giving away that stuff we're doing um, drugs litter projects as also kind of cleaning up the streets if we come across any like discarded works or anything like that around you know what man that just things are fucking real beauty and it's like an honor to be doing this shit man love it meaning and purpose for people who use drugs definitely mint yeah it's if the word wasn't so cheapened by being placed within the title of the most recent uh, tory drug strategy it is quintessentially hope and it's something i found in speaking for the first time publicly about my experience is that everything I had spent a lifetime hiding 
everything I had spent a lifetime ashamed of, everything that I thought was my life being wasted, lost, ruined, was just the research, the on the ground understanding of these things, and yeah. to then have that become, uh, yeah, I'm getting goosebumps even a bit from Terry because again, it's this, it's powerful. It's you're saving lives by what you're doing with naloxone and everything else, but you. You're giving people the opportunity to recognize that their life isn't over and that they haven't fucked it. It's not, they're not ruined. They're not scarred. They're not marred. They have every opportunity to, I don't know what say, reach for the stars without being so cliche, but you know, oh, I mean, no, to, they man. have that power and to rein, to give people that I imagine is, is, as you say, it's high in and of itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. And you know that as well, though, but this goes back to the point that I was saying earlier about being in privileged positions, right? How like we all play different parts. You play your part, I play my part, others play our parts, right? Like for me, like being like being in environments with the likes of like Kate Hall and Jonathan Miller, who are kind of both kind of like right up the food chain in Greater Manchester NHS Foundation Trust, you know, they come to me and they go like, we've seen some of the projects that you do, would really love to do it in, in this big machine that is the trust, right? And I go, that's absolutely awesome that you want to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to work with people who are active drug users, right? Now, straight away for them, they were on board with that. Right. But for some organizations, right, that's kind of like the technical support element that I do with the projects, which is about making the making the service ready to receive the project, to receive the peers. Some other areas that I've worked with when I've said that, like we're going to have people who actively use drugs working as volunteers to go, don't think you can do that. And I go, really, like, why don't you think that you can have people who are actively using drugs involved with doing the project, you know, because there's that whole unconscious bias, you know, like we don't have people necessarily calling out in the way in which I do, you know, I'm not calling people out in a horrible way, but what I do say is like, oh, it's interesting that you're saying you can't have people who use drugs volunteer and within your organization when you've got your staff drinking ethanol on a weekend, getting pissed, but they're on the fucking payroll. Like, is that not discriminatory that people can use a psychoactive drug called alcohol and be on the payroll, but somebody who's maybe using cannabis or snorting a bit of cocaine can't? Do you know what I mean? And I think the thing for me, it's about like, that. that's the privileged position that I'm in is to help organizations now to be able to kind of see the value in working with, with this disenfranchised group who typically have been written off. Nobody sees the good in what they've got, but like you alluded to earlier, we've served fucking, um, we've got street degrees, man. Do you know what I mean? We've served our fucking time for a decade of fucking pain and we've got a qualification that nobody wants. Do you know what I mean? And I think all credit, man, all credit, right, to all of the drug treatment providers that I work with, right? And you know what? And it's this isn't about fucking, oh, he's just trying to feather his own cap, you know? Like, it's not about that, right? I'll call organizations out if I have to. That the, They're really trying their best, right, to kind of engage, involve, participate and co-produce with people with lived and living experience of addictions. And there's real excitement which is coming from that. So for me, it's about, so what's next and what's next and how do we push the parameters and kind of how do we normalize some of this stuff and accept the fact that, you know, people are going to take drugs, man, and that's a human right to be able to, to do so. And what gives us the right to kind of be t- dictating what people can and can't do. And I hope in time that with all of that kind of excitement that comes along from these projects that 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 does filter up and that kind of those governmental agencies the sweller bravemans i think she's gone now as well hasn't she do you know what i mean in the pretty south of the world aye, aye. but i think kind of like we start to get um we start to get really progressive with the likes of whales you know whales are really progressive as far as i can see more craig fad and others you know that kind of that right on the money way kind of we're trying to bring about changes but still 
still we've got a long way to go drug consumption rooms kind of regulated drug markets kind of you know heroin assisted treatment all of these things are evidence-based there's a global global evidence base around these things and and that's what we need to be attaching ourselves to yes world-class treatment and support however creating opportunities where those 17 people don't die every day you know i think that's where i'm at with it yeah exactly that exactly that i mean it's uh somewhere in my notes yeah, six point two percent increase from uh from twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one's deaths, and I' gonna go out on a limb here and state that it's probably gonna be higher when the figures for this year come out. Uh-huh. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's frustrating that we we're starting to see these things, but it's almost we I feel we're missing something. The the Desmond Tutu quote of uh the the villagers pulling the men out of the river every day. And, mm-hmm. you know, eventually you've got to go up, up a river and find out why the fuck they're falling in. And I think that Wales is interesting. Scotland as well. Scotland's a bit more restrained through its uh, devolution powers because obviously they've got a fuckload of energy that England really needs for them to not fuck off with. Uh, but because they've been depressed economically and through various kind of Tory government's idea of England first, um, is, yeah, we see the social deprivation, economic deprivation, plus then uh, propensity of, of generational trauma. So then if you'd like fire a father from working in the mines, you then take uh, money out of the, the household. They, then you end up with uh, educational insecurity, housing insecurity. You can end up with relationship breaking down, divorce, other traumas and shouting, alcoholism and addiction is a way to deal. And you see how all of these things manifest. So is there, and obviously the police are not necessarily the right people, but now you're starting to work with NHS trusts. Can they start to understand that if they then partnered this as well with a, not forceful, not the kind of way we've done with recovery of forced sobriety. You've gone, yeah, you can have all the treatment you want when you don't do the drugs, <laughs> but a kind of like just the talk, talk, classic talking therapy, CBT, as a basic, just so people can identify behavior cycles. Because that was one of the things that it took me a long time is once I sobered up enough from certain drugs and I learned about that drug, next time I went to take that drug, it was a conscious thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, oh, actually, oh, it's been a while, tolerance has dropped, and all of these different things started running through my brain. and then it was like, why am I taking this? And once I became conscious of it and going, I wanted that because I'm feeling hurt right now. What's the consequence of me eating four valleys? I'm going to lose the rest of my day. I'm going to be groggy tomorrow, probably a bit aggressive and short-tempered with people. I'm going to write off, you know, et cetera. You start to make those smarter decisions. And then once I really could identify, oh, right, there's a loneliness element. There's something here from childhood or there's this or there's what. Once you can be conscious of it, you, you can at least delay that, that need to pacify it and each time it's like strengthening a muscle till eventually there were certain drugs that i just went i don't i don't need that one anymore and i've kind of come back to them and the opportunities and i've gone like no the consequence of that outweighs the benefit for me right now thank you though i really appreciate it yeah, but I and think, moved, you know? <laughs> and I think you're right. You know, Simba, I think that like one of the ironies is, you, you know what, right? So it's like, it's not all about bashing the bloody, the government as well, you know, kind of like within the, within the harm to hope, you know, there's some good stuff, you know, like the, the idea of Project Ada, you know, kind of like I'm doing some work currently in, um, in Liverpool with, um, with, with We Are With You, which is a kind of a project partly funded by Project Ada, like, 
there's, there's some really great financial investment going in there. A lot of the stuff we're doing around the peer-to-peer stuff's being built out of kind of the funding that Adder allows. You know, we've got like, um, you know, kind of drug diversion schemes now, you know, which kind of started their life in Durham. Do you know what I mean? With Ron Hogg and Mike Barton and stuff like out of court disposals, the idea that we're not going to criminalize you if we catch you with a class A drug, you know, but what we are going to do is divert you into a, a drug and alcohol treatment and support service, not for treatment, but so we can kind of talk to you about your drug use, you know, and kind of make you aware of some of the harms. And and that for me is hope, man. That's completely hopeful. But then it's that rhetoric that then gets rammed up, you know, but if we catch you the next time, mm-hmm. then we may take your driving license. Then the next time we may take your passport. But like, it's not then thinking about like the, the, the negative consequences that come from that for a family man who's like, maybe he's, like being like got a, a, his own business, he loses his van, he loses his livelihood, his family are in a lot more hurt and harm. And that's when you get into those people going, Well, he had a choice and all that. And you kind of just go, nah, man, there's gotta be there's gotta be a more thought out way of of doing things. Do you know what I mean? But but we're never gonna get there overnight. But I do think that kind of like I do think that the starting point has to be looking at like uh, what's the baseline from which we're making decisions around drugs and drug harms? Do you know what I mean? And that for me then goes back to the Misuse of Drugs Act, you know? And and, and for me, we have to acknowledge like the, the Advisory Council on Misuse of Drugs. Like, you know, again, we've all got our parts to play, you know what I mean? Mate, I'm a bit of a gobshite, but I'm a lot of a fucking gobshite. I've got more patter than a fortnight's rain and I use it well and I influence well with it, right? But I can't be the person who's kind of influencing about kind of pharmacology of different kinds of drugs and those harms. But the great thing is, is we've got wonderful scientists like David Nutt. We've got kind of like Professor Alex Stevens. We've got kind of like Fiona Mishams of the world. We've got the, all of the people who sit on the advisory council of the misuse of drugs. We've got these these global experts who are in a position to be able to look at the drug strategy and not tear it up again. It's like maybe it's a Disney torn up, but let's like that's kind of quite a, a flippant, aggressive statement, you know. Let's have a look at it. Let's kind of reestablish like the different kinds of drugs that are being used and the drug harms. Do you know what I mean? And maybe that's the starting point for a way in which we start to think about drugs differently. Um, and, and think about the consequences for people who use those certain kinds of drugs, you know? Like, for me, I honestly don't feel that people should be criminalized for using any drug. I don't think anyone should be criminalized in any way for what they put into their bodies. I think that currently, in the in the current climate, where organized crime gangs have the monopoly on kind of the drugs markets, I think there should be consequences for people who get caught selling drugs, you know? It can't just be like a... It can't be a free-for-all, do you know what I mean? But I think one of the ways in which we kind of take the take the control of organized take the, the the control away from organized crime gangs is through like legalization decriminalization and the regulation of all drugs do you know what i mean it's like and you made a point before we started recording about like the the madness of like prescription based cannabis for instance versus like plants that aren't prescription based and I, I was doing this uh, I do this kind of this presentation for like um for, for cops and stuff like that I was with the association of um police drug expert witnesses about four weeks ago in Stratford upon Avon and then a, a presentation I did before that was for the National Police Chiefs Council um and that was in the same place ironically it must be the place where all the cops go in Stratford upon Avon mm-hmm. And one of my slides has a picture. It has three pictures. The first picture is of um, 
the Peter Craigan's drug consumption van on the left. Before he got his ambulance, it was his first van. And then the picture in the middle is of um, two cannabis plants, which are, and then two cannabis plants, which are on the ground, but on the, on the pavement in the back, there's a, a bumper sticker of a police car. Do you know what I mean? So obviously the police have stuck it there and took a photograph of it. And then the picture on the right is a fucking like a massive, massive cannabis grow, right? And I kind of typically use this to talk about the madness of the war on drugs, you know? So kind of like here you have Peter Crikant, who's a man who's so fed up with the people he cares about dying in Scotland that he takes the law into his own hands to try and stop people from dying and creating a safe space for them to be able to use drugs and eventually gets arrested for that. Do you know what I mean, right? So he gets arrested for trying to fucking preserve people's lives, right? So then we've also got this picture of fucking these two plants, which invariably, if the police have took a photograph of them and the police car there, they're kind of proper proud of that. I wonder, did those two people who, those those people who that two plants belong to, did they also get criminalised? Do you know what I mean? Or did they kind of go through the trauma of maybe having the police put their fucking door in? Do you know what I mean? Or, do, or did they get an out-of-court disposal? But either way, that couldn't have been a nice experience for them. But then that picture on the right, which is of this massive fucking cannabis grow, I always ask the question, where the fuck's this cannabis grow? And people start going, Switzerland, Sweden. You go, no, it's like, it's in Kent. And it's owned by GM Pharmaceuticals, this grow. And it's like, there's 90 tons of it a year go out from the UK to the rest of the world because kind of, I might be wrong in this next, statement and if i am please correct us because i lot of myself when i say it's about like the uk being the biggest exporter is it to the rest of the world of medical cannabis i don't know but it might it may, um... no you, you, you're correct i think uh clarify i think it's uh you mean gw pharmaceuticals yeah all right I, well, yeah, what, yeah. yeah yeah sorry yeah but yeah, but yeah you are you are more than correct i think it's well over 100 tons now and these are still estimates by uh the united nations because the uk won't reveal it because they don't have to because it's technically a private corporation now owned by an irish corporation so it's got even less insight yeah. and oversight from uk government so then the argument that I'm making to all these audiences full of cops, I'm going, so fucking why aren't you putting the fucking doors in that fucking place? I'll tell you where it is. Why are you wanting to go and fucking tie, like, bend somebody up for two fucking plants, but yet 90 tonnes of the stuff's coming out of fucking there? What's the difference between those plants in there and those plants there? And you kind of see, like, oh, people sitting with their heads in their hands because they see the madness of it. You know what I mean, Simba? And 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 I think, um, and I hope we don't get any, any fucking libel laws or anything here, but interestingly, I'm sure one of the directors of, what was the name of that company? GW. GW Pharmaceuticals. I'm sure that one of their directors, uh, his wife is called Victoria Aitkins, and Victoria uh, Aitkins was the drugs minister, <laughs> conservative uh, drugs minister. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll clarify this one because it is something that I've, uh, people end up sort of misrepeating. It worked out, yeah, Victoria Aitkins, who she one of her roles was as minister when she was in, uh, was it Theresa May's government? No, David Cameron's government. One of, I think it was Cameron's government. Um, but basically, yeah, her husband was is Paul Kenwood, who is yeah. the managing director of a company called British Sugar. British Sugar have a subcontract to grow 45 acres of cannabis for GW Pharmaceuticals. All but right. then also, I don't know, was it during Theresa May's government? Sorry, because Theresa May's husband at the time is Philip May. And he was the uh, oh, like head of cl like client relations to, uh, and a director of an investment firm who happened to, at the time, own the majority share in GW Pharmaceuticals. Really? Um yeah, so it just 
again creates that wonderful little conspiracy and obviously they've, they've backed away from it and whatever else but now you look at it you've got people like Jacob Briggs Mog and others that are investing millions through their portfolio yeah. into cannabis while saying we need to lock them up and make it a class A yeah, and I think the thing for me though, Simba, look, it, it's not that fucking people shouldn't be making money out of like this commodity. It's not about that, man. But it's about like let let's not pursue the fucking little man. Let's not hurt the Peter Crikins of the world for trying to do the fucking right thing. Let's not. Like, let's not ruin these two people for fucking a few plants for trying to probably have a little smoke in the fucking house and not hurt anybody. Do you know what I mean? When you've got big national corporations who are kind of doing things like this with affiliations with kind of prominent ministers, however, however, the distance, however long the distance is, there seems to me to be a bit of a conflict of interest there. Do you know what I mean? And it's all just, it's, it's all just a little bit, um, it's all just a little bit messy, but interestingly, when I was in that, I was in that presentation. After I'd done the presentation, I sat back down. The guy I was with, he was smirking, and I said, "What's up?" He said, "One of the uh, one of the directors from the pharma company you've just been talking about is in the audience, and he's asked if you wouldn't name where the uh, where that site is in future." I was like, "Fucking hell, it's bizarre, isn't it?" Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but anyway, to be to to kind of get back, listen, my feeling around. Um, my feeling around kind of policing and stuff like that, I think it's quite ironic that um, I believe that police are one of the main drivers of um, sensible drug policy reforms currently and around harm reduction. Yes, they're definitely still locking people up, but definitely in terms of kind of like uh, you look at West Midlands police and kind of other police forces, they're being really proactive now in terms of like thinking about different ways of being able to do things. You mentioned earlier, who was it, the new... Was um, Mark Rowley, the new head of Met Police. Yeah, yeah, he came out. He came out recently publicly saying that we needed to do things differently. The um, you've got Chief Inspector, Chief Constable Richard Lewis, who's the the new drugs lead for the National Police Chiefs Council, publicly coming out and saying that we want to do things differently. I train a lot of cops up and down the UK. You know, they tell me that they don't want to be going after the low-hanging fruit. It's it's not on their agenda, you know. There's bigger fish to fry, but their hands are tied as well, you know. So, so I think for me, like, the, there is a positive appetite for change. I definitely think that it's coming. But we have to deal with it. I have to deal with it. I choose to deal with it from a place of positivity and um, being optimistic and taking people on journeys and getting into people's hearts. You know, my wife said a long time ago to me, you know, like I was always pitching at the wrong level that I needed to be kind of talking to ministers and stuff like that. And it wasn't an ego statement. You know what I mean? And I kind of I'm in a place now where thankfully. I'm getting the opportunity to kind of influence that just that little bit, that, that higher level, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's a really nice place to be because that makes me, it gives me the opportunity to talk about all the fucking amazing people that I get to work with every single day across Berry Bolton, Salford, Trafford, Lewisham next week and fucking, and Redbridge, Redbridge and Lewisham in the same week and then Wales and, and Liverpool and Wigan and all these, all of these wonderful places that are, that have got the people who I really care about who are trying to do great things to save the lives of their friends. You know what I mean? And I think that, I think, it's through those stories of love and compassion and showing videos. I, I video everything, me, photograph and video everything, showing ministers pictures of people where they're telling their stories who've been through those traumas, but they're trying to better themselves. You know, I think we can, we can do something really special with that, man. Yeah, completely agree. And I think 
once you win the police, I mean, we're already seeing it. I think uh, last I checked, it's still, uh, I think it's nine out of 43 constabularies uh, in England and Wales that have uh, implemented checkpoint diversions, which are these out-of-court um, sort of disposals. disposals, that's the word they use. can never never pull it out of my ass, that one. Um, but yeah, uh, but it's it's good that we're now seeing, obviously, this increase. If, the, if we get met, the Met on board, basically that's the rest of the country. It then becomes very difficult for these smaller population sites because we will very quickly statistically see how this works. And it's an interesting thing, as you say, I think, it took me a long time. Obviously, I was a victim to sort of policing because I was kicked out of school a lot. I dealt with social services, had a very disruptive childhood. So cops would bring me back two, three in the morning. They'd find me all sorts doing all sorts of stupid shit as a youth because you know, I was troubled. I was a troubled young man. Um, so I had resentment. I had hatred. It was you. These people were these uniformed fascists in my head that were picking me up and taking me back to a problematic area to face you know, trauma and abuse. And it's taken me a long time to recognize that actually majority of those cops were good to me. Uh, they, they, when they put me in the car, you know, if I, I didn't have shoes on or whatever, you know, if I was covered in blood or whatever it would be, they would they'd seek to help in some way, but they would never then go, we're taking you away. It wouldn't be forceful in that way. Obviously, the limitations in the law sort of yeah. back then. Um, but, and then, yeah, as I've come older and being a drug user and even the interactions I've had, I've still never touched all the wood, not been arrested. In drug possession, yeah, I've been caught by cops half a dozen times with different drugs, but just talk to them and they kind of make they just use their discretion and they're kind of going, well, clearly you're just a person that's got drugs on you right now. You're not a threat. You've got no history. You're not got a warrant. There's no nothing. I didn't have this interaction. Good night, sir. Mate, so, I, I could be because on the most part, man, Simba, they can't be also that, you know, there was a time when every cop I was teaching, I was younger than every cop I was teaching 20 years ago, right? Now I'm older than every cop I teach. Do you know what I mean? Like I do a lot of, I, I train every cop um, at Lincolnshire Police, for instance, every new cohort of police officers that they have, they have a session with me to help them become like ace aware and trauma informed and kind of like, I absolutely ask the question of them in terms of like, um, put your hands up if you think that we should be criminalizing people who use drugs and the hands just don't go up man put your hands up if you would carry naloxone all the hands go up do you know what i mean i think we've got a we've got a newer generation of police officers coming through who aren't like some of the old guard who've been in this big institution for ages who've been conditioned and kind of that pissed off we've got an, an opportunity now with the next generation of police officers to to tell them that like that that pelian principle that's around you know that kind of the foundations of policing was built the, like the, the preservation of life you know and be proud to protect you know kind of like we've all got a different role to play in kind of tackling these issues you know and equally i feel like for me i also have to advocate for the police from time to time you know it's not it's not all about me back government you know it's not all about me bashing certain groups of people right there's a there's a collective responsibility on all of us to to be accountable for for change you know so i have to with people who use drugs, for instance, on each of those groups, Simba, right? Each of the naloxone groups have set up and developed something called the Naloxone Champion Steering Group. So what we do is we invite the local public health commissioner to come and sit on that group with people who use drugs. And we invite a, an inspector from the local police area command to come and sit on those groups as well. So we can all forge and build relationships. Do you know what I mean, right? And it's really wonderful to see the way in which at first, when you tell some of the drug users, right, I'm bringing a cop in, they go, you're fucking mad. We can't be having fucking cops in here. I go, yeah, man. 
wind your fucking neck in, right? You're quick to fucking to judge, like you're quick about when they judge you, but you're now sat here judging them, you know? Like let's give it a let's give it a fair shot. And actually what you get to see is you get to see active drug users building and forging relationships with police officers where they meet on a fucking really human level, and then that cop goes away and he goes right across his police area command. We've got an awesome group of people who are going out saving lives. If you see them in, with their bags and their backpacks and they're doing stuff with the drug users, give them a wide berth, you know? And it becomes like this. It becomes a really wonderful co-production. And I do, honestly, I keep going back to it. For me, I kind of feel like more at the lower levels and the middle levels, right? We've got some really great work, some great voices and that coming together now. We've got some real champions. And I definitely think that's going to be a way of influencing higher up because I do get the sense that there's only a matter time where and then that's gone on for a long time but i think a uh, public appetite's changing i think that that ministers are going to start to hear that they're going to recognize that they're not going to lose votes if they maybe think about doing some reforms and all the rest of it and i think we're going to i think we're going to get there it's going to be slow but it's progressing anyway that's that's my sense of where we're at like to be honest yeah no exactly right and it's I swing violently on this on this pendulum uh, from some days, obviously, depending on how angry I am, but depending you know, what I've learned that day, what news I've seen, what atrocity that I've, I've witnessed, as it were, third, second, third hand, whatever. Um, but my trajectory across the evolution of my life is to recognize and remind myself that when the war is over, there will still be police. And actually, the Peelian principles, as you spoke of before, the nine principles set down by Sir Robert Peel, I fundamentally agree with, and it's it still takes me a long time to struggle with that because I'm not. I've I've come from being an anarchist. It was like we'll burn everything to fucking ground. We just live in the ashes. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Freedom is freedom is freedom, and it doesn't matter what it looks like. To now going, all right, I'm still not on board with this whole neoliberalistic capitalist system as it is. But all right, we can work within this, so we can save the people. If we can take away that that uh, pit at the bottom that it's funneling people through then, yeah, that we can sort the top as we go sort of thing. Yeah. And the police, again, I think, as you were saying, that more and more they get into policing because they see the shit going around them and they know it's not the drugs. No. They can see it, so they have to go, all right, I need to get in this. And they go, well, and I, I, I still talk to a couple of cops that I did the, the police coaching course with uh, in Durham, and they identified me to go and train with them on community matters because I basically stood up in a meeting with them, loads of... Uh, councillors, uh, housing and, and local NHS from my area because they were like, there's drugs and suicide rampant in the area. And I basically stood up and went, these are backward. These are saying that they're taking drugs and killing themselves because they took the drugs. And I'm saying, no, they're socially deprived. They have nothing. Some yeah. of these people that I don't know around you are third, fourth generation unemployed. And they're being called benefit scum, scroungers. And saying, no, they've not been given any services, any not necessarily a hand up, but just uh, taking the boot off. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. so we're at a point, I think, that there are people craving in the police force to serve, protect, to to work with that community. But they have to then, as well as yeah, the police, but the drug users themselves, is I'm still traumatized by it. I see a blue light. I've got a tub, right. a, magic, a magic tub that sits in my car that says if I get pulled over in the car, I can have as much THC in my blood as I as I have. And so I but I have that little protection. But, but I can't. But I can't. That's the madness as well, isn't it? But I couldn't. If I got caught in the car with THC, I'm fucking drug swapped or whatever. Then the chances are, um, you know, I'm not driving around to hotels and that anymore. And it is, it is all, it is all pretty crazy. But again, I take like I do take hope, Simba, from the fact that um.
that you know when I everywhere I, when I was in heaven and all that there used to always be Akab written on the walls and that graffiti all coppers all bastards you know what I mean and it's like honestly I'll, I'll name me flagged on the mask no they're not man I think the, the the cops who are absolute wankers it's nothing to do with the fact that they're police officers they're just wankers with a warrant card do you know what I mean and we're always going to have those people in, in, in certain walks of life that get that little bit of power but typically like who they are in any way is kind of like they're just a they're not right people in any way. Uh, honestly, I think, um, uh, again, I kind of get a sense that like, well, I have a privilege of working with different groups of cops to deliver one session that will last a lifetime. It's an hour and a half with, with me. I take a drug user in with us as well to kind of do a little bit of the, the training. And definitely for me, it's about making an impression on them about like, don't underestimate the opportunity that you have to be able to make a difference if it's not about enforcement by just showing people that, like, finding out who they are, what they're about. If you've got to lock them up, lock them up with love, man. Do you know what I mean? You can still kind of, you don't have to make their lives totally difficult. Exactly. And it's it's interesting. Both sides are suffering from the same cognitive dissonance, maybe I think is the loosest way I can come to describe it, in that the police go, or some police, sorry, I will clarify this, yeah, we'll not be definitive with these statements. Um, drug users perceive that the police go, drug users are bad. You've used drugs, therefore you're a bad person, I can punish you. And then the drug users, they, therefore, see the police almost like a, a predator prey situation. And so what I was saying before with like the tub is that even though I've got that protection, I still see a blue light or a cop car. I still see even just the blue and the yellow high-vis flash yeah, yeah. on a van past me in my periphery and my yeah. body my body tenses and i still sort of panic and it's because this is that predator prey sort of relationship and if there's then it's the power imbalance that yeah the cat can play with the mouse but and the cat knows it's not going to kill the mouse but the mouse is still like that cat could kill me at any time and so it's addressing that in the way i think is, is correct and it's the same with you taking a, a, an active drug user into that room it's like you, tell, you can't say that oh, the Loch Ness Monster exists. You're taking Nessie in there and going, look. So then the cops have to believe it. They can't then deny it. They're going, well, I've spoke to that person and I don't think they're bad. And he just told me he used heroin yesterday and he's going to go use it tonight. Yeah. And, and, and I don't and they have to feel it, physically sit with that uncomfortability, with their own yeah. prejudice, whether it be personal or professional or however it's got in there. Yeah. We, all, we all suffer from that, from like the just the cultural biases and indoctrination through literature, media, TV, films. The, the always the depiction of a drug user is toward yeah. addiction. It's it, it's part of the plot that their life falls apart. Yeah, but but I think the thing for me is, like, and again, this is about where like earlier I mentioned, like we have the just say no campaign, but police, but schools are taking a different route and actively bring like think about it, bringing people who use drugs into a school environment. 15 year old kids who've never been fucking heard of a little while back but that's what's happening now and again you've got like a ministerial policies now that kind of go still need to be tough on people who use drugs but then you've got police forces across the UK who are actively saying look let's bring people who use drugs in to teach our newest officers because we want to shape the rest of their careers based on them having an understanding of trauma and, and I think this is why we need to be like really commending different places and groups for that stuff you know, it's kind of like that. There is the recognition that whilst it's still very static and fucking linear up here and judgmental and it's about enforcement, it, the people who are doing the enforcing, the cops, we've got like 
people like retired like um, Deputy Chief Constable um, Jason Harwin do you know what I mean who are kind of saying bring people who use drugs in to teach my police officers because we want them to know the truth we want them to 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 use the heart in their decision making do you know what I mean and I think that that's really I think that that's really admirable so what we need to do Simma is we need to be making sure that our networks tap into kind of networks of people in different settings so they can go and then influence their networks. You know, so like for me, there's a number of like amazing cops, like um, there was uh, there was Chief Inspector Jason Q at Thames Valley Police who recently retired. Now he's kind of working in a civilian consultancy capacity, but he's doing so much good, man, kind of connecting with ministers and other police forces and kind of making the argument for sensible drug draw reforms. You've got like Sir Neil Woods, who I know kind of spoke at your at your, your, your amazing event in kind of in Bourbon as well, you know. We've got like lots of voices of people from certain like disciplines and backgrounds and careers who are really like positive advocates for sensible drug law reform. And they're in their networks all chipping away at it. And I think like we're in a good like we're in a good um we're in a good place. Like I, I what is it you say whether you think you can or you can't you right that was a quote by um or oh, henry ford wasn't it do you know what i mean and i guess for me like definitely what i i start my days and i end my days with like um I do a little bit of journaling on a morning. I write all my successes down on an evening before I kind of go to bed and all that, like strategic gains and stuff like that. What are my lessons learned? Why was that lesson important? What are my future lessons for kind of going into tomorrow? And, you know, like I'm going to look back on all of those lists over the 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 last month. I've been doing this program. It's called... Um, Unstoppable 28 with a, a crazy Geordie fucking bloke called Paul Mort. You've got to check him out, right? He's on Facebook and stuff like that. He's, two, he's a two times um, world master coach uh, award winner. He's from South Shields. He's got tattoos and a potty mouth, right? And he's such a breath of fresh air, man. And 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 I've, this, co- this thing that I've been doing, Unstoppable 28, what it's getting me to do in the morning is to... Uh, to center myself. So the first thing I don't, what I don't do in the morning is I pick this up. I don't fucking pick this up. That bullshit. I pick this up. Simba, listen to this, man. You're going to be fucking blown away, right? Uh, I pick this up and I put on some transcendental meditation, right? Where I'm doing um, positive mantras in the morning, every fucking morning, right? No shit me, right? Slowing myself down for the day that I'm hydrating. I'm drinking loads of water every fucking morning, right? I've got this little list that I'm doing around, like, what's the feeling that I want to create today, right? I'm kind of filling me, me head full of, like, positive intentions about what I want to do. Who do I need to be accountable for today? Do you know what I mean? And, and on today's list, I needed to be accountable for the, the peers that I was working with. Do you know what I mean? I needed to be accountable to the organizations that are giving me the opportunities to be able to do the things that I'm doing. Um, what else am I doing? I'm cascading love. Do you know what I mean? So I'm kind of go- I'm using social networks to to think about like some of the peers that I've worked with, just sending them a little message saying, I'm thinking about you. You're really fucking special, you know? I'm filling me fucking me head and me heart with nothing but positivity and then reflecting on that at the end of the day. And what I've seen across the last month, and I wish I'd been doing it for fucking ever, mate, is like there's a lot of really fucking amazing, amazing change happening just through somebody like me and guys like you. And I think if we all took time to 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 not have the automatic rehearse material around everything's fucking terrible and we're going fucking backwards and everything's shite and we were able to look at our individual and collective fucking positive intentions 
actions, I think we would see like we were just in a really, really great place. I've enjoyed working with Paul Mort's program so much that I've, t- I've signed up for the next program, which is his 90-day mansformation. <laughs> so I'm going to fucking get on that. And then... Um, I'm just I'm just learning that kind of like um what products of what we tell ourselves that um you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, that kind of like loving sweet tones and kind of um positive intentions are the way to to do things. And I guess this is the way that I'm now choosing to do my drug law reform, my drug user advocacy, my drug user activist work is from a position of um I've got a small a small period of time on this fucking beautiful earth to do my best to try and make things better. And I choose to do that from a place of positivity and understanding and recognizing that I'm in like a, a really privileged position to to be sat, sat here talking to you, to be able to work with people who use drugs, to have the ear of some people who can make some big changes in organizations and in terms of policies. And like, you know what, man, all of that because I fucked my life up with drinking drugs. What a fucking blessing. Thank fuck that I fucked me life up with drinking drugs. That's all I can say. Yeah. It's a beautifully humbling thing when you can recognize the power in your pain and in struggle and in the it's either a cliched little sign that people have probably seen over the years on Instagram uh, kicking around in the background of your fucking living room, which is life is not a destination, it's a journey. And it is as long as you can kind of remember this constant evolution then yeah you never get caught up in it you never get lost in it and it's some people obviously i'm not gonna say like the victim mentality sort of thing but it's it's really easy to want to sit and lick our wounds but then it's even easier to become obsessive and lick them to the point of making the skin raw and making the wound not heal and it's yeah it's about creating those pathways for people those opportunities those off ramps i heard is is a nice uh term i heard quite recently um so the most people are on highways and we're just blitzing forward and even faced with new information new challenging experiences there isn't a way for them to get off that lane they can't get away from it so the more that we can do with this to create these these levels between it because it seems that society or maybe just even the media in this country seems to paint it as you're either pro hippie everyone should take acid all the time and all the drugs way or everyone should be shot for fucking looking at drugs did you know what i mean like we should be going through that google history this they accidentally all correct the cannabis kick the door in yeah, and, yeah. And it's not the vast majority of people are in the middle of rationale of this of going is it affecting me and harming me now is it affecting and harming them then do i give a fuck and and yeah and so the more little steps along the way as you say for these these conversations i've been thinking for a while of of trying to because we obviously we were doing quite well with the cannabis club pre-covid and having a a physical space that people could come to once a week spend the evening there they could procure whatever procure whatever they needed they could get education information they could meet their peers they could just chill the fuck out and they could do it in an environment uh that, that was safe and they could have any and all conversations and I've been trying to think of how to do something uh, in Durham that isn't necessarily just a cannabis club. There's just almost like a drug education center, basically just a cafe where people just actually talk about the things that we're not supposed to talk about in public. Yeah. Because, yeah. because there is so many, much of this shit. And it's, as you said, there's wonderful projects that yourself is involved with where we're going, all right, there's a great intersection of sexual health, mental health, and drug use. And it's all well and good focusing on one and the other, but there's, there's some sexual reform groups out there that are, uh, They've got they're unstuck on that, that highway because they they don't see the off ramp. They go well, it increases risks, so therefore it's bad. And it's like, well, 
but why is it increasing risk? Can education reduce that risk? Can awareness, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah, off ramps are a good thing is what I'm advocating here. So the more we can do them through sort of conversations and the, the creation of these niche spaces, I think is, is, is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And, it really is, man. And you've got that here, man. You've got that here and you do it, you do it so well. I'm telling you through your, uh, through your platform. Do you know what I mean? I think kind of you have like amazingly diverse guests. The journeys that you, you go on are absolutely fantastic. You give kind of people like me a space to kind of be, be able to amplify kind of the stuff that, that that's important to, to me as well. You know, I, I don't think you can underestimate kind of like the, the, the impact that what you do has you know kind of like what was this podcast number what you're night yet fucking now like you know what i mean you're tireless simba and you're a wonderful um you're a wonderful advocate as well you know i definitely think there's something about kind of like um there's a lot of people who might just sit around and fucking moan about things you know what i mean this isn't good and that's not good and i kind of i'm always quick to go what are you fucking doing about it you know anyone can just sit there fucking ranting and raving about this isn't right and that's not right well what are you going to do about it and i think that like you represent somebody for me who's kind of doing something about it and doing something about it in a in a really positive way and i surround myself with people like you you know it's kind of like i attach myself with the the people who want to get shit done right and like and we get and we get shit done and and, and we do it in our own in our own different ways, you know. So no, it's um it's good shit. I mean I've got like another day here in um in Bolton tomorrow. I'm gonna go and meet a nurse to talk about dry blood spot testing and line a project up for the peers here. Uh, school holidays. So like my wife is uh, she's in London as we speak uh, watching um Wicked with me two kids they've been to the shard this afternoon for afternoon tea and uh and i need to get home for the last two days of like school holidays i'm going to be right in the shit <laughs> do you know what i mean it's got to get the balance right don't you between kind of and uh work and, and family so i'll be making a beeline home tomorrow night i haven't spent the rest of the the week with them and then i'm i'm back on a train down to London and you may never see me again once I get on that fucking tube because it's heightened anxiety for me the tube line I'm always I have a little irrational fear that I'm going to get lost and never found again <laughs> yeah that was I think it may be a northern thing as, as well where you used to like we've got a one track it goes that way or that way we know what we, we know what we're doing but yeah I think it was probably the fifth or sixth time that I went on I think it was maybe uh, coming off Victoria and trying to get a King's Cross and taking there's a dodgy thing where you've got in a north and south. Uh, I didn't quite tell you. And every time I try to remember it, it was what the fifth occasion where I just went, I don't give a fuck. It's five stops up. If I get it wrong, I turn around, I get on that and I go the fuck back. Uh, it's yeah. one of, <laughs> do you know what it is? Give it, yeah. I, I seem to kind of give us big, massive, like, like, Loads of different projects to co-produce and all of that shit. I can do that stuff pretty fine, but the idea of getting on a fucking tube with a bag and getting like finding that I might end up in the wrong place kind of blows me mind. But no, man, it's um, it's good. Life is good, and I'm I'm kind of just um, I'm blessed to be doing the things that I'm doing. The last thing, one of the last things I think I should say is um, so I've kind of like this idea of um. I can't even explain the word, but I'll tell you, I'll give you the explanation of the thing. So like this word epistemology, right? It's kind of a word I talk about a lot, right? So uh, epistemological research is about kind of the study of things, how we know what we know, right? Mm -hmm. So like I've kind of been asking myself recently when it comes to kind of like developing like treatment and support services, like how do we know what we know? How do we know that we're getting it right? Do you know what I mean? So like one of the things that I've kind of really been 
aware of recently is that like do we really consult with consumers of our services about kind of whether or not we're getting it right in terms of treatment and support right and i kind of don't think that we are i don't think that we do enough when it comes to listening to the voices of people who use drugs and, and our services and making sure that our services are designed for demand. So like mm-hmm. many years ago, you used to have the National Treatment Agency. There used to be some accountability in some ways. You used to have like quarterly review panels where you had the National Treatment Agency and you used to have drug users who sit on those panels. Then drug treatment providers would come along and talk about at a local level how they thought they were doing. And then you would have the voice of the lived experience who was going, well, you might feel like that, but it's not actually like that. Do you what i mean right so there was like a lot of accountability and stuff and i think we've lost the ability to consult with people who use drugs i don't think we do it anymore i don't think we do a lot of consulting with people with lots of different kinds of ailments so um it's all about the name for me simple so i thought right i'm going to come up with a name for something so i've come up with this idea which is called we are love right and the love is spelled l-u-v and it stands for liberating user voices and it's going to become the uk's first national network of people who use drugs so basically what i've done is with all those different peer groups that we We've got under the drug use, got them all together in one space. And what they're going to become is um, drug user researchers so they can go out into the community to those people who aren't actively in treatment and ask the questions like, why aren't you in treatment? What is it that you need that's going to help you to kind of to get you to where you, um, you want to be? So it's very early stages right now. Um, we're going to create um, a long form documentary. So I've got a um, I've got a filmmaker from a production company who's going to coach um a number of the individuals from the We Are Love group to become um, peer journalists so they can tell the stories of people who use drugs from a real-life perspective, video and people on cameras where we're asking them those questions as well. Um, I went and bought the domain name, which is um, wearelove.org, and we're creating a landing space. I've got some kind of great support from um, from uh, release there, kind of backing it. We've got uh, Professor Katie Holloway from the University of South Wales, who's going to teach peers to become peer researchers and do thematic researchy type stuff. So we're going to create a landing page for the website, but that's all we're creating. And we're going to say to our 96 members, this is your fucking web page. What needs to go on it? And we're going to get a little thematic group of people who are interested in web design. We're going to coach them to be able to do that. And they design the website and make sure we can liberate user voices like that. And we're going to create a, a group of um, drug user advocates as well. So release and their team of lawyers are going to train a small group from across um, the, the UK how to become drug user advocates. So if anyone gets a script stopped in a way which is a little bit dodgy, we can send our one of our We All Love advocates along to basically go and advocate and speak with the provider and the punter to see if we can kind of alleviate things. And if we can't, then we'll fucking escalate it. So this is my new thing. Like, I haven't got enough to be fucking doing, right? Yeah. Um, we All Love, We All Liberating User Voices. I'm sure there'll be a line of T-shirts and I think it'll be absolutely fantastic. And I don't actually think that We Are Love should just be for people who are addicted or people who've been disenfranchised through addiction. I definitely think for me that it could maybe be a network for you and kind of maybe some of your members and stuff like that. So, you know, a, a way in which we could just encapsulate people who are, who've got a thing about drugs. 
Do you know what I mean? And what we're going to do with the information that we get at a local level, we're going to do four bits of thematic research each year at a local level with every peer group on exactly the same topic. So it might be access to treatment and support, you know, like what is it like when you come into treatment support? Are you offered a range of treatment options? If so, what were they? Did you feel warm and welcomed when you came in? Do you know what I mean? Did you get did you get offered everything that you need? If you didn't get offered everything that you need, what's the thing that's missing? Do you know what I mean? So we might ask five questions like that. So when we send the groups out across the seven area planning board areas in Wales and Wigan and Liverpool and Manchester, Salford, Berry, Bolton, Trafford, Middlesbrough, all of the places, they're all going to go out at exactly the same time, ask exactly the same questions of people who use drugs in the community. Then we're going to take that data of like 10% of the treatment population of each of those areas, and we're going to do a little bit of thematic analysis on it. Then we're going to invite the commissioners to come and see us at the Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services, and we're going to do a really important presentation to them that says, this is the questions that we asked. This is what people told us. Have a look at this short 10-minute film, which our peer journalists have done. So we're going to liberate the user's voice through video, because that's how we touch hearts, not through football and loads of paper. Then we're going to have this thing, which is going to be our five asks. So in Wigan, they'll have our five asks. In Wales, they'll have our five asks. And that's going to be what we all love Wigan or we all love Dover or we all love Cardiff feel would make a difference under that one heading. Right. So we're going to present to the commissioner our five asks and ask them and take a month to think about it and then come back and tell us what the can and can't do. So the things that come back and say, well, we can definitely do these things. Then as a body of people who use drugs, we're going to say, fantastic. Can we co-produce that with you? And for the things that say the can't do, we're going to go, can we work with you to find the middle ground then? And then can we work with you on that? So at a local level, we get all of this data. But then what we're going to get is we're going to pull all of that information together from those 28 groups which might well be a thousand voices of people who use drugs then we're going to work with release and with Katie to make a more polished document which we'll then give to NHS England we'll get under the noses of the Fulton Home Office and all of the big hitters there still make our five asks but our top level five asks will be a bit more like a bit more heavy can we have these things if we can brilliant can we get involved if we can't why not and how do we find the middle ground that's my new thing Simma. it's not my new thing but that's kind of been the monster which is now in the process of being created. When I haven't even got time to do what I'm doing fucking now, by the way, then that thing is yeah. coming along. But this is, this is why I do then hope this has inspired some people that come across this, to hear this, of uh, yeah, partook in this podcast to to want to get involved because you know many hands make light work, as I often say. Um, and it's it's again, it just shows you your appetite. You you, you see wrong, you can see at least the direction that, you, that we should be going in and then you, you're rounding the people up and then by the nature of the herd it, it starts to move and so i think it's 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 brilliant that we're starting to get there and the point that you made about uh again people struggling with sort of dependency issues if they were to be the only catch-all i think you miss a huge subset of data if you can c correlate the data set obviously work for anomalies, you will then start to understand a few different things. Of, All right, why does this dependent population struggle compared with this? And then you'll be able to really pinpoint and use that yeah. live data to then actually go invest in this, invest in that. Actually, oh, housing. Turns out if we just, you know, rent control in one area, it means that people then don't need to steal X amount to make their fix in X area to do. A lot of it is, is really quite basic economics, but it's, this whole argument has become so emotive and i think that's why your approach is so powerful because you're you're meeting emotion with emotion and they're not angry you're not 
you know, raising to a point where people just go deaf and they're just like, oh, I can't hear this. But you, similar, re- you we reach want, them in other ways, you know? We want, we want people to come towards us, you know? We want people to come towards us and those p- people in positions of influence, you know? I'm not going to get commissioners to come and work with me if they experience me as just an angry Geordie bastard who's likely to make their life more fucking difficult, you know? We've got problems, right? I accept we've got problems, but it's okay to have problems if the, if we know that there's solutions, right? And in my experience, like, uh, I won't present problems to people without solutions. You know, the idea for our way our lovers came out of the the idea that we know that things aren't working well but if we can go and ask the question of the people whose lives are being impacted by these things they will know the things that they want that are going to make things better and if in a non-threatening way what we can do through co-production is get commissioners and purse holders and public health teams and directors of public health to start listening then it's not that they don't want to get things right of course they want to get things right but at the minute are we designing services for demand right and are we and I say this with respect are we guessing at it a little bit because if what we're not doing is consulting with like a minimum of 10% of the treatment population or people who use drugs, then how can we ever know that the things that we tender for, we build our services around are based on the needs of people who we aren't talking to? We're not probably to people who aren't in treatment and support. Do you know what I mean? So how do we, how are we going to find out what's best going to meet their needs if we don't physically go out into the communities and see them? So I kind of see it as like, for me, it's not about presenting problems without presenting those solutions, but at the same time, recognizing that that when we empower a cohort of people that I work with who've been told they're not good at anything and all of a sudden we say, well, you're going to become a peer researcher or you're going to go down to London and work with fucking release and we're going to train you up to become a drug user advocate and we're going to pay your fucking expenses down there and you stay, put you in a hotel. We also start to make these people feel fucking like they've got a place in the world, you know? So it's it, it, then they, when they go out into the communities and they're talking to their mates who are disenfranchised and all of a sudden they're, they're, they're saying, oh, I'm a peer researcher with fucking We Are Love or I'm a... I'm a I'm an naloxone champion working with Kaleidoscope, a great Manchester NHS Foundation Trust. For that person who's got no hope on the ground, he goes, or she goes, God, I'd love to do something like that. And you go, well, fucking come on then. Come and join the team while I'm still using drugs. So fucking what? So fucking what? That's that. That's an asset to these projects, you know? So we, we start to just kind of reposition everything in a way in which is about, like, everybody kind of gets well in some ways. All of the team come along fucking together. We don't leave anybody behind. We show, we show tolerance and understanding for the... The, for the unconscious biases and the way in which kind of people have been commissioned, you know? So, like, um, I don't know, man. Fucking, it's mint, you know? Simma, it's mint. And we just need to keep going. And then do this podcast again, maybe it's in fucking a year's time. And because of me meditation, I'll have knee hair and I'll be all fucking <laughs> going home, armed up. Yeah. I like I like it. Uh, you won't even need to dial in on Zoom. You'll just <laughs> transcendentally just 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 appear here. Yeah, white rabbit, Simba. Follow the white rabbit. Oh man, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation as I always do, and I, yeah, I always, I'm always left with a sense of I hope how those kids feel, or those cops, or anyone that you speak to with with hope, with with yeah, just man. the awareness that yeah, you're right. We have to reframe and celebrate our victories and we have to remember the humanity of the spectrum of every stakeholder i hate that modern term but everyone that's involved in this be it a cop be it a sober person be it someone struggling with dependency or just curious um we all have something again and lose from this and it's i think yeah the, the police have, we've said for a while are a good strategy because if we can stop them attacking us then they can start to listen to us then they can start to work with us and then our community stop falling apart 
and then, then we don't have to do half the work we do and then it becomes about just celebrating the weird the wonderful and the wacky that is yeah. often the the people that are disenfranchised as you say that are pushed to the, the fringes of our society and it's wonderful that people like yourself are doing frankly as i've always said just amazing work to to be out there and just just every day man just slogging it away just slogging away and it's every day you are making a difference and as you said it's it's exponential you talk to a hundred fucking kids you know what that kid does who that hung around to talk to you he goes and talks to 10 minutes they talk to 20 minutes they talk to 30 minutes and all of a sudden you potentially stopped an overdose in an area you potentially stopped someone falling into a position where they could have you know passed out and been vulnerable you've do you know what i mean it's it's that active daily changes that are it's like ripples in a pond do you know what i mean and it's I, tiny but, stones but it just spreads man it just fucking spreads cool man. and you know like for me Simba, it's like i'm just like fucking honestly like i'm just like i'm i'm one guy who's been fucking gifted with these opportunities do you know what i mean like but like I didn't kind of arrive here by chance, you know, when I was broken and I was a mess, I had a fucking guy who, uh, who came towards me and put my arm, his arm around my neck and he scrubbed me head. He's a guy in recovery from addiction as well. And he said, you little bastard. He says, I'll help you for a fucking year, but it's conditional. And I was broken, man. I was going, I'll do anything. I'll do anything, you know, like just to have the fucking love of this man. He said, Hey, I'll help you for a year on the condition that when you get better, you go and do for one other person what I've done for you. That's the promise, just one thing. And like fucking for me, I promised him then. He that guy died, like Sean, he was a great guy. Um, but you know what? I didn't I, I don't just do it for one person, you know. I kind of do it for like everyone that I meet because like showed me that I, I that I meant something, that I was worth something, that he fucking believed in me. And and you know what? And they're, they're at the kind of the cornerstones of everything that I do, right? It's like you hear me talking always about love, man, and about the importance of connection and hope, right? Now, you don't have to go to college to study that shit, right? That exists within fucking all of us, right? We can all make a difference, like, right now for our, not just people who are addicted to drugs, just for people, man. Just for fucking people, we're in a fucking really tough time right now where if we can just start being a little bit more loving and compassionate towards each other, the world's going to become a fucking much better place, you know what I mean? And I guess that I have to extend that love and compassion and understanding to lots of different kinds of people, and that's cops and everything else, you know? I guess, like, I just have to try and be a bit of a mirror for what I want fucking, how I want other people to be, you know? And, uh, and, and, and if that's what my life's journey's been about, do you know what I mean? Then then I'm fucking blessed, man. I'm blessed to be in a position to fucking do it. And I, and I really mean that, you know, it's like, it's nice to get paid. It's nice to have nice things, but it's not the thing that fucking orientates me or fucking makes me do what I do. You know, it's fucking, it's people find, feeling like they go away from a little bit of time with me, feeling like the matter, you know, that that's shit's priceless, man. Yeah, man. Entirely. And I think, um, that's a beautiful place to end this this podcast. Uh, to be fair, um, you you got two choices here. I suppose that yeah, you can either go and I'll do housekeeping, or I do housekeeping and you can hang around. Yeah, just do housekeeping and hang around. I'll watch you in your excellence, Simba. I'll just <laughs> sit back and watch you. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, well, yeah. Thank you, thank you again. Um, yeah, there you go, folks. That's George Charlton. I uh, will include a lot of links uh, below. I've got many of the. Uh, news uh, articles that we discussed earlier as well so them in there 
uh, something in my head actually uh, wanted to clarify. It's it's worse the deaths. It was four thousand eight hundred fifty nine, not four thousand five hundred eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so yeah, just wanted to put that on there in case somebody in the comments going to call it. But yeah. Um, other than that, I'm quite happy with the factual record with this, folks. If you do find any issues or you want to have a further conversation, by all means, hit me up. Um, I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. Uh, if you've got any other further guests, obviously, as we reach out beyond, obviously, this little cannabis bubble of ours, do please um, get on it. I have... I'm not going to curse that. I was going to say I've just booked my 100th guest. And I'm not going to tell you who it is because I haven't got the confirmation email from their uh, from their person yet. So I'm not going to tell you who the next uh, the, the guest will be for guest 100. So you're going to have to just wait for that one, folks. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to help uh, fund it, uh, please take us out on patreon.com forward slash the simple life, where for less than a cup of coffee or a pint or whatever your dose of your uh, narcotic or illicit or illicit substance may be, you can help keep the lights on in this project of mine. As you can probably see by how shiny I am, there's several lights on today. So it's getting more and more expensive, but it's bloody cost a living crisis um but yeah check out all social media platforms at the simple life uh you've been beautiful folks we'll see you next week with a guest and you'll love it it'll be halloween as well so do something dress up shit am i gonna have to dress up i might dress up because it's halloween next week i'll figure that one out all right peace and love folks this little curl of hair is gonna do my head in the whole way through this recording very clever it's very Clark Kent. Isn't it? Yeah.